When people were buying gas, if they didn't look like they would hang around, he would shake the chains and the coyotes would howl. From KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, it's Season 2 of Untold Arizona. The podcast. I'm Tiara Vian. Arizona is a unique place full of stories, folklore, and Wild West chicanery. KJZZ is celebrating Arizona with stories outside the usual news. In this podcast episode, we're hitting the Arizona road. Our first story is a trip to Rieto, a colonia just off I-10. Colonias are unincorporated areas in the borderlands of the U.S. and Mexico. Historically, the residents of these colonias are usually of Mexican-American or Mexican nationality. But there's a colonia in Arizona that's different. Chloe Jones picks up the story from just north of Tucson. The first thing you see is a beautiful, well-kept park. But the first thing you notice is the crumbling road as your car jolts, hitting one of the many potholes in the streets of Rieto. Rieto is a good town, but it's a forgotten town. That's Robert Brown, a lifetime resident of Rieto, Arizona. A large number of the homes are abandoned and the streets are littered with trash. It's a good community, but if you on the freeway and you blink and you drive by, you'll miss it. The community is adjacent to I-10 between the town of Marana and the city of Tucson. In the 1930s, it was a small Yaqui village of settlers from the Bracero program, a guest worker program from that time period. In 1954, due to displacement by technology and discrimination, Rito became home to a community of new families that remain today. So technology came about at the same time desegregation came about, before uh, cotton was handpicked. But then in 1954, with technology came the uh, cotton picking machines, so they didn't need all the workers. But because of the school desegregation, a lot of these farmers were on the school board. And so they were really upset about the integration part of it. That was Gertha Lee Brown Hurd, a resident of Rieto since 1963. She's Robert Brown's aunt. Before moving to Rieto, she attended school in nearby Marana. The school was segregated. Uh, we had our own uh, school on the regular campus, but it was a separate building altogether. So we couldn't go to school with the white kids, even though we were on the same grounds. The 1954 landmark Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education, unanimously ruled racial segregation in schools as unconstitutional. Some of the farmers didn't like it. Uh, so. Uh, they kicked all the people that they had been housing off of their farms. So they had to find other places to stay. The farmers wouldn't let them buy land in Marana. They didn't want to sell any land to the blacks. That's how people ended up here, because this was the only place they could buy property. But owning property was only part of the battle. Now, there was no infrastructure at all, no water, no electricity, no gas, nothing. Rieto is a designated colonia under the Arizona Department of Housing. Colonias are typically unincorporated settlements near the U.S.-Mexico border with low-quality housing and poor services. In Rieto, residents did not have access to their own water until 1978, when they got a grant to build their own well. Before 1978, they had to travel across the freeway to the Southern Pacific Railroad water tower and bring water back to their community. Today, they get their utilities from Tucson and Marana. 
federal law passed in 1990 says border states have to set aside 10 percent of allocated funds from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development for colonias. To qualify, a community must be located within 150 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border and meet other infrastructural and administrative requirements. Daniel Tyluki, with Community Development and Neighborhood Conservation for Pima County, says although colonias have a right to these funds, the application process to receive them can take about a year to be approved. Tyluki says it would be great if the process were less arduous, but that the state has to meet federal requirements. There are colonias out there that aren't certified with the state that exist. In my opinion, those communities don't even have the capacity to become eligible for funding because the requirements are what they are. One of Rito's few neighbors is Cal Portland Cement, located directly behind the community. Cal Portland has donated cement and volunteers to numerous community development projects. In the 1990s, they began giving toys to the children and gift cards to the families for Christmas. Steve Regis has worked for Cal Portland Cement since 1979 and is now the senior vice president. We always have an open door to members of the community if they want in and want to come in and, and talk to the plant management. They tried to be a good neighbor. Gertha lived in both Phoenix and Tucson to get higher education and is now a leader in the community responsible for getting funding from the county. Despite living in a city with modern conveniences, she still returned to Rito. I'm a country girl, you know, just straight out country. I like uh, living out in the open. I can go out and I can see the stars at night. I've got the mountain ranges. We've got beautiful sunsets. You know, you can't beat it. Roads need pavement. Streets need lights, and abandoned houses need to be cleaned up. But to the families that live there, Rito will always be home. Chloe Jones, KJZZ News. ASU Cronkite students Allie Barton, Miranda Sir, and Paulina Verbera contributed to that story. You can see photos and a video of the people of Rito at untold.kjzz.org. Now let's head north to another forgotten place. During Route 66's heyday, families drove across the country on the Mother Road from Chicago to the West Coast and back again, and along the way took in a variety of roadside attractions, from the world's largest covered wagon in Illinois to a rattlesnake den in Oklahoma. In Arizona, many stopped halfway between Flagstaff and Winslow at a spooky ghost town called Two Guns. From the Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Laurel Morales takes us there. A dilapidated cave, some chicken wire, and a hand-painted sign announcing mountain lions are a few of the relics that remain of two guns today. Route 66 aficionado Sean Evans and I decide to explore the site on a recent chilly morning. Yeah, if you just park over here, this was at one point part of 66. A lot of legend surrounds two guns, so it's difficult to know fact from fiction. As one story goes, in 1878, a group of Apache warriors attacked a Navajo encampment and murdered almost everyone there. The Apache then hid in a cave with their horses. A couple Navajo scouts found them but knew they were outnumbered, so they built a fire at the mouth of the cave, suffocating the Apaches inside. Today, it's known as the Apache Death Cave. Evans reads from a brochure printed in the 1960s. Relive the revenge the crafty Navajo found upon his hated enemy. 
that just seems like we're reading a lot into this. It was a time when staying the night at the Wigwam Motel or taking a picture with a concrete dinosaur was all part of the fun. You could drive from Chicago to Los Angeles on one road, and the price of gas was less than the speed limit. If you ever plan to motor west, travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on route. Decades before that song hit the airwaves, Earl and Louise Cundiff saw opportunity on the Mother Road and opened up a trading post in Two Guns. They were soon followed by Harry Miller, who called himself Indian Miller. He convinced the Cundiffs to let him build a zoo on the property. And so we have pictures of Indian Miller in front of his zoo, who was neither native nor, yeah. In the black and white picture, Miller wears long braids beneath a floppy cowboy hat and he's clutching a porcupine to his chest. He kept in these two front cages coyotes on chains. And so when people were buying gas, if they didn't look like they would hang around, he would shake the chains and the coyotes would howl. So that would draw people over. <laughs> if you squint, you can imagine caged Gila monsters and mountain lions where crumbling stacks of rock wall remain. Miller also fixed up the Apache Death Cave, built a bridge, added some skulls, and strung up lights. Given the story of the caves and, and given the condition, I, you go first. <laughs> Believe me, your keys. <laughs> the cave isn't the only thing that makes two guns spooky. In 1926, Earl Cundiff had had it with Harry Miller. Cundiff had a temper. That day, uh, Harry Miller had to go pick up someone at Canyon Diablo Station. He went in to get dressed. And when he got in there, there was Cundiff with a gun. Miller didn't hesitate. He snatched his own gun from the dresser and shot and killed Cundiff first. Miller was acquitted at trial but suffered in other ways. He was attacked by a mountain lion on two separate occasions. And two guns also suffered. Route 66 was rerouted to the opposite side of the canyon. Then in the early 70s, the wider, faster interstate replaced the Mother Road, as Route 66 business owner Myrna Delgadillo recounts. Once the bypass came through, it, it was just very, very hard to make a living. And there were many people who had to close down their businesses because they could no longer make a living. Families have replaced road trips west with flights to Disneyland and Harry Potter World. In Two Guns Today, we find fresh footprints in the snow, graffiti, a boarded-up window, and a door where someone has spray-painted the words, smoke meth. Evan says this is probably his last trip. It doesn't feel like this will be here very much longer. Gone are the days of kitschy rubber tomahawks and worry stones, the simpler times when a folk tale about a mysterious cave could make a family trip memorable. Laurel Morales, KJZZ News, Two Guns. You can see photos of Harry Miller and what's left of two guns. They're at untold.kjzz.org. Now let's think about the Arizona road itself. Out of nearly 47,000 miles that make up the nation's interstate system, Arizona's Interstate 19 stands out. Christina Estes takes us along a 63-mile stretch of highway that nearly lost its unique selling point. Interstate 19 is the country's only continuous highway that lists distances in kilometers, not miles. Starting just north of the border at Nogales, Interstate 19 stretches 101 kilometers to Tucson. 
This has been a good location for us just off the interstate. Just off exit 62 is Arizona Family Restaurant. We opened this in 1976. About three years after Don Herc's restaurant opened, Interstate 19 opened with metric signs. There was a push to move the U.S. to the metric system. While distance signs were installed in metric units, Tim Tate with Arizona's Department of Transportation says speed limits were not. And that was probably a good idea, especially for enforcing the speed limit. Uh, I could see there could be problems if they were in kilometers. For 30 years, drivers kept an eye on their miles per hour and watched for signs explaining how many kilometers to Green Valley, Rio Rico, and Mexico. Then, 10 years ago, Arizona decided to change. Using federal stimulus funds, the state prepared to update more than 2,000 signs along I-19 with signs that would be easier to see and replace kilometers with miles. I thought it was silly. I thought it was working very well the way it is and, and uh, wanted it to stay that way. So did many others, and they made sure ADOT heard them. There were strong opinions on both sides of the issue. Changing to miles would involve changing exit numbers. Tate says ADOT considered using signs with new and old exit numbers, but no one really liked the idea. So the metric system survived and the money went to other highway projects. I think ultimately what won out was not so much being in favor of kilometers, but being in favor of the unique character of Interstate 19 and considering that to be part of the unique character of Interstate 19. What? Kilometers? Back at Arizona Family Restaurant, Rick Hall remembers driving I-19 all the time when he lived in Green Valley. It irked him then and now. So make up your mind. <laughs> you got miles per hour marked on the signs and, and kilometers marked on the, on the distance. So that's all it does is messes everybody up. <laughs> but his lunch companions are willing to give an inch or 25.4 millimeters. The metric system makes more sense. That talk is reassuring to Don Hilger, president of the U.S. Metric Association. The future is that it's inevitable. I like to say that because I think we'll eventually get there. In 1975, President Gerald Ford signed the Metric Conversion Act, designed to coordinate and plan the increasing use of the metric system. But it also said the conversion was completely voluntary. Hilger says there was a lot of initial excitement, but it slowed down. And in 1982, President Ronald Reagan disbanded the U.S. Metric Board. Not everybody bought into it because there wasn't a coordinated effort and it was always like, well, I'll wait till they go metric and then I'll follow, or nobody seemed to want to be the first or the pioneers. Still, metric measurements are part of our daily lives. We participate in 5K runs, buy two-liter bottles of pop, and 750 milliliters of liquor. The science industry relies on metric units, and companies like Ford, John Deere, and Procter & Gamble have converted some or all of their operations to metric. We certainly do the behind-the-scenes metric very well in this country, I believe. For now, we remain the only industrialized nation that hasn't fully embraced the metric system. And Interstate 19 remains the lone highway with metric signs and no plans to switch. It's like, why? Rick Hall and other pro-milers could get another chance to make their case if they're prepared to wait about 20 years. That's when signs along I-19 will likely need to be replaced. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Green Valley. And that's it for this episode of Untold Arizona. Thanks for taking the ride. And here's what's coming up on Season 2. That's why they call them the Golden Years, and it was a very different city. <laughs> Jose Antonio was a 16-year-old in Nogales, Sonora, and he was shot 10 times through the border fence by a Border Patrol agent on the Arizona side. 
This episode was produced by me, Tiara Vian. Stories were edited by Al Macias, Michelle Marisco, Chad Snow, and Carrie Fair Snyder. Our digital editor is Sky Shout. Pictures, videos, maps, and more are at untold.kjzz.org. Do you have an untold Arizona story of your own? Drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using the hashtag untoldarizona. And check out our Facebook group where you can connect to more people who love a good Arizona tale as much as you do. If you haven't heard season one or our other podcasts, check out podcast.kjzz.org. Find us on iTunes or search for KJZZ wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, help KJZZ tell even more great stories. Head over to donate.kjzz.org to make your gift of support. This is a KJZZ production. I'm Tiara Vian, and thanks for listening.